welcome to another edition of Title IX College Sports Conversations. I'm Bonnie Bernstein, joined today by the former two-time captain at Lafayette College, who has just happened to pave the way for what I would consider the most competitive area in sports broadcasting, and that is play-by-play. Beth Moens, now in her 18th season, calling college football on ESPN, basketball, softball, soccer, volleyball, also on our college play-by-play resume. And back in 2017, she became the very first woman to call a nationally broadcast NFL game. Beth, I have this vision of you sitting in front of your TV as a little kid growing up in Syracuse, holding, I don't know, a spatula or the tape recorder or whatever, just starting to hone your craft. How accurate of a picture would you say that paints? That that is pretty much it. I, I believe it was the plastic uh, spoon from the kitchen. And then I actually was coming of age just when the Mr. Microphone hit the market. So um, I was able to use the old Mr. Microphone, which you used to be able to hook up to. Uh, we had something called a transistor radio. Some of you may remember those days. And uh, so I would broadcast games from our backyard to, uh, you know, my mom and dad would be uh, putzing around the house on weekends. And so I'd be playing kickball and then I'd spend a little time on, on the side calling the, the uh, kickball or wiffle ball games and things like that. And, and then of course, you know, once, uh, once I got the basket on the bike, I, I had a mobile uh, set so I could take it on the road to around the neighborhood and call games. Oh, so were you in high demand? Were you taking requests? Is this how this was all going down? I don't know if it was appreciated or not all my, all my banter. I wasn't a trash talker. I was literally, Really calling the game and, and working on the craft, even from a young age, it's what I knew I wanted to do. So, um, you know, I, I tried to make it entertaining and informational for all the uh, all the eight, nine and 10 year olds uh, that were in attendance. Just think of the nostalgia that that brings up. If, if somebody dug up one of those tapes of Beth Moen's doing play-by-play before she ever wound up at the network, I'm just, I, I think it could be valuable. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> I have never had a chance. I wish I was a better picture taker. Even today, I'm not good with pictures and videos. I just kind of live and let it happen, but it would be, it would be fantastic to go revisit those days. It was so much fun. You know, if you think about it, you and I were all in on sports as kids, you with basketball and softball and soccer, but it was at a time when Title IX was really first just getting its legs. What's the origin story for you? You know, I, when I was uh, coming of age, Title IX was already in existence. So there were opportunities out there that were just starting to come about as I was moving up. I, I do remember when I was younger, you know, my dad was um, a basketball coach at our local high school. Your so, brothers, you had three brothers. Yeah, three brothers. So we had a we had a hoop out in the front yard, um, and then we'd all you know pile all the kids in the station wagon and go. When my dad had basketball practices, there were two gymnasiums in our high school, so he'd be holding practice in one, and we'd have you know a basketball and wiffle ball and the old Nerf football, and we'd be playing all kinds of games in the other gym. And originally, most of the leagues that I played in. You know, there may have been one or two other little girls, but I, I remember playing, you know, like in, in the first organized leagues, it was mostly other boys that I was playing with. It probably wasn't till, you know, middle school and high school that there were actually girls teams where you had enough people to play on. Was there a defining moment that you remember, whether it was the, the first time you beat one of your brothers in a game of horse or you're playing in a league game and you had the final shot and like you dribble and go up uh, against a guy and, and put the shot in? You know, it, it's funny because 
it was every day for me with three brothers and it was all sports all the time. I don't really remember a specific moment where I thought this might be something that I, I could pursue. It's funny what you remember over time. What The one thing I do recall is uh, a couple of our neighbors, um, they were all going to the YMCA one day. And back in those days, it was the young men's uh, club. So I was not able to go. And I still, to this day, remember um, how much that um angered me and and I guess in a lot of ways inspired me that you know if the opportunities came for me to compete with anybody uh, I, I wanted to be prepared for that. When it comes to college you wound up at Lafayette you were able to receive some financial aid mm -hmm. why was that the the ultimate destination for you? You know, I grew up in Syracuse and, and always was a huge Syracuse fan, but I wasn't really highly recruited there. And Lafayette caught my attention and I, I went for a visit and really uh, enjoyed the team. I liked the campus and the coaching staff. And quite honestly, Bonnie, it was an opportunity to play right away. And that was one of the things that attracted me to it, other than the fact that it was a great education. I had actually um, been mentored for years, even though I wanted to be a broadcast journalist, to go be an English major and to do a lot of reading and writing and be well-versed in a lot of different things and hone my communication skills that way and then go do all the broadcast journalism stuff on the side on weekends when I went back home over the summer. So Lafayette ended up being a, a good fit for me. I did get a call late in the process from a new head coach at UConn by the name of Gino Ariema, but I, I had already committed to um, Lafayette, and so that ended up being a pretty good path for me. Yeah, you weren't yet in the day and age of the transfer portal where you could just sort of hop no, in there. And no, no. And he, he was a desperate first-year coach. I'm sure I was way down uh, his list of calls by the time he got to me. <laughs> when you reflect back on your career at Lafayette and you were three-time all-conference, you were a thousand-point scorer, you're in Lafayette's Hall of Fame, still to this day uh, hold the all-time assist record. Mm -hmm. What do you think being an athlete and a captain in particular, what do you think about being a captain has been so instrumental in shaping who you are in your adult life? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know how much of it you're born with and how much of those leadership skills that you are able to hone over the years. I, I would imagine it's a little bit of both. But I, I like to say my parents raised a point guard, and that's kind of the mentality that that I've always had. I've, I've never shied away on the basketball court or softball or soccer when I was playing in high school and then in college. Being that person that was out in front and being that leader and trying my best to um, help everybody around me get better and strive for the team goals. And so I think that's a big thing. I think that may have set me apart from a lot of teenage girls, uh, even to this day, that you know may not be intrigued by the play-by-play -play position. That was always the role that I wanted first and foremost. I wanted to have that responsibility to sort of drive the bus. And so that was a big deal for me. And that's where I gained a lot of confidence. That's where I gained um, one of the skills that I think is so valuable today. And that is to handle your business from within that sort of team structure, whether it's an actual team or the team of people that you work with. And I think that's um, critical, especially for young women that are in a field that is uh, dominated by men. It's funny, you 
mentioned that you always wanted to do play-by-play. Play. Now, when you and I were growing up, there weren't a lot of women doing sports oh. broadcasting. There was Phyllis George. She was in the studio. There was Leslie Visser. She was a reporter. There was literally not a single female play-by-play -play person. Why? Because I, I kind of feel like a lot of people in our industry don't understand that each position, play-by-play, -play, color analyst, reporter, studio host, each comes with its unique set of skills, right? Mm -hmm. And being good at one doesn't necessarily mean you're good at the other. Why play-by-play -play for you at a time when there was nobody for you to look to, to emulate? Yeah, I, I think uh, it goes back to probably my dad and and you know, one of the things that he always coached us up in is don't shy away from figuring out what your weaknesses are and, and then working hard to turn them into strengths. And so not that it was necessarily a weakness, but I did recognize right away as I was watching sports as a kid, who is the analyst? Well, that's the former NFL quarterback. That's the former NBA coach. That's the former Olympian. And I, kind of knew that wasn't going to be the height that I would achieve as an athlete. <laughs> right. And so I just immediately looked to the guy and it was always a guy sitting next to him. And I was like, okay, well, who's that? And, you know, for lack of a better term, I always kid, you know, with other play-by-play, -play, we're kind of the Joe Schmoes. We can come from anywhere and come from any background. And as long as you're good at that craft, I literally remember saying to myself, well, you know what? I can be that guy. And so that's what I was drawn to. And as you know, for most women, when you start out, you're either pushed to the sideline or you're pushed into the studio. And I did those roles. I was okay at it. It wasn't my passion. And I realized also right away that I wanted to be on site. I wanted the adrenaline rush that I got as an athlete and be there courtside or be there in the booth with 60,000 people at a football game. What was your first play-by-play -play opportunity? Because I, I mean, I know guys who have been doing it for years. They were calling high school games. They were calling mm -hmm. college games. What was opportunity number one for you and who gave that to you? So my dad not only was the coach at the local high school, but also a teacher. And as you know, teachers have a lot of side hustles going on. So <laughs> in the fall, uh, my dad was one of the clock operators at uh, football games at old Archie Hall Stadium at North Syracuse High School. Okay. And so uh, I would tag along with him and another guy by the name of John Dennison, who was also a coach at the school, and they would run the scoreboard and the clock and all that stuff. And I, I was the PA announcer. And so as I was calling out plays, I probably would embellish a little bit and describe the plays after they had happened. And so that was probably the first gig that I had. And then I started calling my dad's basketball games during the winter. And that's kind of where I got my foot in the door. And then growing up in Syracuse was great uh, fertile proving ground because back in those days, not everything was on national television. So the local TV station there they, we were doing all kinds of Syracuse sports, uh, Lemoyne College with another college in town, and a lot of high school sports. And I just started tagging along as a PA and pulling cables and being a runner and just started bugging people to give me opportunities. And I hit it right around the, uh, the early 80s when more and more women's sports were on TV. Mm. A lot of guys weren't interested in calling women's sports. So they said, hey, let the kid have a shot at it. And, and that's, that's what I did back on Super Sports uh, in Syracuse. 
Well, I would imagine there was this seminal moment for you in 1987, because prior to you calling the Monday Night Doubleheader game, I believe it was at Chargers Broncos in 2017, yep. right? Mm -hmm. You were the first person to call play-by-play -play in 30 years. Mm -hmm. In 1987, it was a woman by the name of Gail Sarens. It was a regional game. It was Chiefs Seahawks. How did you get wind of that? It uh, it came up in the local paper, and you know, back in those days, there was no Sunday ticket. You know, you didn't get a chance to see all the games. You saw whatever game was in your market, and so that being a regional game, I never actually saw Gail call the game, but I I saw an article. My dad cut it out of the newspaper and said, "Hey, look at this. There's this woman that." you know, called the NFL. And so I kind of watched and waited to see if there would be other opportunities for her or, or other women along the way. And that, that never really came to pass. So I just kind of kept my head down and hope, okay, well, somebody did it. I know it's possible. And I just need to figure out now what my path is to that. Because the other thing that's, you know, crazy about our business, there, there's all kinds of different ways to get to the same job. And you just kind of have to figure out your route. So I, I always had Gail in the back of my mind and always um, hoped that I would be able to reach that that uh, moment in time where I might be able to call the NFL. And sure enough, it, it came to pass. Well, your name has been connected to so many firsts for women in our industry. When you scan your full plate of experiences, what game or what event have you called play-by-play play for that you feel best symbolizes you as a Title IX beneficiary? I think probably it goes back to that first Monday night football game. And just, you know, when you're in the moment, it's always been my day-to-day -to, -day to prepare for a game, no matter what type of game it is or at what level. So while you're building up to that, you're, you're kind of focused on the task at hand. Obviously you have interviews and things like that to take care of around it but you know when the moment comes you want to be at your best so you're kind of locked in and it was probably after that Bonnie that I realized you know just the outpouring of responses from women that were in the industry some of my peers young girls that were watching um, moms and dads that had daughters that were interested in getting into broadcasting or into any field that had been male dominated for years and and to be able to see the impact that that has had, I, I think is probably the thing that touches me the most. And I, you know, I look around today and it's almost, you know, on a, on a weekly or monthly basis that there are other women now getting opportunities to call play by play in all kinds of different sports. And it really warms my heart to see that. And I, I think that, you know, may have been the sort of the seminal moment and hopefully a turning point where we can start to get away from any more firsts because a lot of walls are coming down. Well, not only were you the first woman to call a national NFL game, uh, you were the first woman to call an NBA game this past season on ESPN. There was a broadcast during that same season where you were doing play-by-play. -play. Doris Burke was the analyst. Mm -hmm. Lisa Salters was the reporter, and it was an all-female production team. When you think about the increasing influx of letters, DMs, and emails that you're getting from little girls who want to grow up and do what we do, and do specifically what you do and play by play, how monumental was that specific broadcast for the progress of women in sports? Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, it had a huge impact 
in the public eye. And, and for those of us in the business, it was huge behind the scenes too, because you know, the, the numbers still need to come up for positions like director and producer and a lot of people behind the scenes that are calling a lot of the shots. And so the, the one thing about that game is all of the women had been working in the NBA before at these specific jobs and in these roles. And this was kind of the first time that we had all come together. And so it, it was fabulous to see all the women and, and think back of, you know, the, the early days when, when you and I were starting out and you were the only woman in the room. And so that, that was tremendous progress. And then I think, you know, as we were there at the game and just me and Doris and Lisa, I remember we, we had a moment, we were all just kind of hanging out on the court and everywhere you turned, uh, there was somebody trying to get your attention and it was, you know, a little girl with a sign or, you know, mom and dad with their daughter and they were trying to get your attention. And it really, I think, struck all three of us. We had a moment there where we were like, wow, this, you know, is, is bigger than all of us. And it was pretty cool to see what, uh, what may come of just us being there and being in the public eye. If kids can see it, they know they can do it. We say mm -hmm. it all the time. And I feel like we're hearing that more and more. Um, I would imagine doing what you do, the rarity of your position, even in 2022, in the grand scheme of things, may help you appreciate Title IX in a different way than mm -hmm. I think a lot of us. What does the law in its 50th anniversary mean to you? It's huge because I, I truly believe I would not be able to do what I'm doing had it not been for all those women that fought for um, and all the men that fought for the passage of that um, legislation and all of the women that were trailblazers before us that we, we probably don't even know their names. You know, the first ones to take a basketball court and, and to play football and to play baseball and softball and things like that. So there are so many that came before us and I'm so appreciative of sort of the groundwork that they laid for all of us and really made our path um, a little bit easier to get started on. And then once you're on it, you know, you kind of fight for everything you can get. And, and, you know, I, I think what the legislation said to me um, was it's okay to be ambitious. It's okay to be bold and it's okay to chase your dreams, no matter, you know, how crazy or how out of the box they might be. And so it, it's one of the biggest pieces of legislation in, in my lifetime. And, and I hope as we move farther and farther away from it, that appreciation continues in a lot of younger generations that, you know, hopefully the fight has been a lot easier as, as we move farther along. Have you had the chance at all to incorporate historical perspective into some of the broadcasts since the 50th anniversary hit and, and as you do more and more women's games throughout the year? I, I do. I, I take a lot of pride in actually uh, sneaking in an AIAW reference uh, during nice. my basketball <laughs> days. Um, you know, I, I wish we could sit down and have a conversation with the NCAA. The wins all count for Pat Summit, but the stats don't count for any of her players uh, before the days of the NCAA in 1982. And and there were so many amazing women that played basketball. Really, it, you know, its heyday started in the 1970s, and a lot of those women are still around the game and still alive today. So um, I, I do uh, try as best I can to maintain the history of the sport. And, and I, I think I, I do uh, with our crew, especially at the Women's College World Series, have that perspective. Hey, you know, it's, it's great to remember the Jocelyn Allos, 
But don't forget about the Jenny Finches and don't forget about the Debbie Dooms who were 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, because that's what makes baseball and the NBA and the NFL so special is you can recall the days of Jim Brown and you can recall the days of Hank Aaron and how special that was for a generation of fans. And it's the same thing for a, a generation of women's fans too. We see the upside of Title IX, the opportunity, not just at the competitive level, but when it comes to professional, the professional arena, how many different opportunities mm -hmm. for women there are to, to stay in athletics. If you were going to identify one area where there's still room for growth, as it pertains to Title IX, based on the games you cover, the people you speak to, what you see on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. What is that for you? I, I think female ownership is gonna be critical moving forward. And we're starting to see that, uh, those inroads being made. I, I think the, the other encouraging sign for me, Bonnie, is with team sports, it's been very difficult to get a footing in local markets when you're playing two or three or sometimes, you know, a, a triple header over the weekend if it's softball to maintain that fan base. We love following the U.S. women's teams. Now what's encouraging to me is we are starting to see more of a following in local markets for their NWSL team or their WNBA team. And so I think that's kind of the next frontier moving forward. You, you know, people forget it took the NBA a while to grab hold. And now um, as we get uh, decades into the life of the WNBA, we're starting to see that more and more. And that that's an encouraging sign for me. The other thing I love to see is sort of um, the brotherhood that we see from male athletes now that are attending a lot of the professional women's sports, which I think is great to see and a good sign um, or something good to pass along to a lot of young men out there that may not have the experience of watching women's sports yet. Hopefully they'll be able to go out and do that. And imagine you get all sorts of requests to discuss not only your career, but Title IX, whether that's at your alma mater or Syracuse, where you got your master's in communications or, you know, just talking to general media outlets. What's your message to athletes, Beth, about Title IX? and what we need to be seizing with these opportunities, not just in the moment where we are on the athletic fields of play, but what we can take away from that experience as we move into adulthood. You know, I, I think probably the biggest thing is to um, be grateful to those that have come before you, but also keep pushing. Um, keep pushing that envelope farther and further out in front of you because um, you know, uh, um, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, I don't remember the exact quote, but, um, you know, uh, girls that sit over in the corner don't get a lot done. It's those girls that are uh, vocal and that are ambitious and bold that get things done. And so that's what I try and encourage this generation. Study those that came before you. See what worked for them. See what didn't. And try and incorporate some of the dreams that they had and the opportunities that you now have and keep pushing that forward. Well, whether it was Beth Moens riding around on her bike with a Mr. Microphone calling games in her Syracuse neighborhood or calling college football, college basketball, NFL, NBA, 
baseball uh, on our modern networks. You have certainly never sat in a corner. And for that, we are very thankful. Thank you so much for joining us, Beth, and to all of you who've had a chance to join us for our latest Title IX college sports conversations. Be sure to check out all of our episodes on the NCAA's YouTube channel, and we'll see you again soon.